If you're a tax professional or other financial professional, the WealthAbility team has an exciting event coming up and I would love to invite you. We're holding our 2021 Leadership Conference, Adapting to a Post-Pandemic World, June 3rd through the 6th. The speaker lineup is unbelievable. We have Robert Kiyosaki sharing his economic outlook, Sarah Singer-Nuri sharing her recent work on the strategies you need for sustaining passionate, mission-driven teams, Mike Dillard on the power of personal development in business, and the list goes on and on and on. I have never been so excited to host and moderate an event. The event is virtual, so you can attend from anywhere in the world, and we've put together a great package of CPE credits and bonuses for you too. The link for more details will be in the show notes, or head over to WealthAbility.com to learn more. See you there. This is the WealthAbility Show with Tom Wheelwright. Way more money, way less taxes. Welcome to the WealthAbility Show, where we're always discovering how to make way more money and pay way less taxes. Hi, this is Tom Wheelwright, your host, founder, and CEO of WealthAbility. So President Biden is proposing $80 billion additional funding to the IRS. And the question is, is the IRS coming after you? And if so, what can you do about that? So I'm very uh, pleased to have Scott Michael on my show, a, a tax controversy attorney. I'm gonna, uh, Scott, it's Chris, great to have you here. I, you know, I, you, I, I love talking tax and everybody knows I love talking tax. So it's great to have another tax guy on the show. Thanks so much for being here. Thanks so much for having me, Tom. I really appreciate it. So tell us a little bit about your background, you know, what you do and, and uh, basically, um, you know, why you're here. Sure. I've uh, been a tax controversy lawyer for um, almost 40 years. And you can tell by my youthful appearance that I started when I was like nine years old. No, I, uh, I came out of law school and joined Kaplan and Drysdale and just immediately got hooked by uh, the criminal tax practice mm -hmm. at the firm and have pretty much been doing that nonstop ever since. I find criminal tax cases to be fascinating. The clients are always very interesting. The fact patterns are interesting. And then the practice is sort of multifaceted because we not just we don't just represent people who are under investigation and in real trouble. We represent a lot of people who have done some things wrong but haven't yet been caught and they want to kind of come in from the cold and make things right. And so you do that. We do some civil examination work where it's sensitive fraud issues can come up. And I've been doing it for a long time and I really enjoy it. Well, I, I, I'm glad. Now we know. First of all, everybody should know the most important thing from this show is you know who to call. Okay, yeah. so that's that's going to be really important. But let's talk about uh, first of all, let's talk about this whole dialogue that's going on about high income earners uh, hiding all this money and this trillion dollars that if the IRS just had some more money than they could find a trillion dollars. What's your take on this, Scott? Yeah, I think it's I think I think there is something definitely to the proposition that spending money on tax enforcement generates more revenue. I, I've seen statistics that a dollar spent on enforcement can bring in anywhere from eight to 13 dollars. It's I'm not quite sure how that gets measured. So I think it is a truism that ramping up IRS enforcement can bring in revenue. And it is also a truism that the IRS has been decimated budget-wise over the past you know, decade or so. So I think there's a lot of catching up to do. 
Now, whether the spending 80 billion nets a trillion dollars, uh, who knows? I mean, that's a lot of politics that I think are built up into the into the statements that are being made, you know, about this budget request and the like. But there's clearly a direct linkage. Uh, it's just a question of what it's going to be spent on and what it's going to get. Yeah. So, so I've got a number of questions here. First of all, let's talk about this trillion dollars. Is it really a trillion dollars? You know, Nina Olson, who was the uh, taxpayer advocate for many, many years. Um, I have, uh, you know, everybody in the profession has a high, high regard for Nina Absolutely. Olson said, there's no way it's anywhere close to a trillion dollars. And, you know, when you talk about that kind of money, you're talking about underground economy, you're talking about all sorts of things that are really difficult to get at in the first place. So is the point of Mr. Reddick saying it's a trillion dollars just so that he can say, well, look, we could get a lot more money or is the point of President Biden saying, well, look, this is how we're going to pay for all these social spending plans. What do you think? Well, there's a little bit of both in that, I think. I do think the way, as you know, the way Washington works, when people tack on a revenue estimate, it's usually to pay for something that somebody else wants. And whether there's actually a trillion dollars out there, who knows? I mean, the you know, studying the tax gap is is. I would imagine pretty difficult. It's one of those things you don't know what you really don't know. Uh, I do think that there has been a bit of a change in the past, say, five years or so, maybe since some of the numbers that came out. You talked about Nina and some of the numbers that have come out before. You know, I think you've got like a cryptocurrency economy now that's going great guns. I do think that there are more sort of underground economy opportunities internationally for people. Now, whether it's the difference between three or 400 billion and a trillion, you know, who knows? It is a lot of money. And, you know, again, I think given the linkage between enforcement spending and increased revenue, there's clearly something there. A lot of this is politics. There's no question about that. But there clearly is something to the need for more tax enforcement. Well, uh, there's no question. And, And do we need better um, auditors, absolutely. I mean, the auditors that have come out uh, recently, they're a little sad because about all they can do is documentation, right? That's all they can look at is documentation. I, I've had so many, uh, the audits I have, I don't handle a whole lot of audits. Our clients don't tend to get audited, but those that do get audited, I found that the auditors are really just spending all their time on documentation because it doesn't take a rocket science you know, to require documentation. So I would like to see um, better quality uh, auditors come out. Um, but let's perhaps, maybe we could start with answering more than 20% of phone calls um, at the IRS. I would certainly hope that that $80 billion doesn't go all to enforcement, that a good chunk of it goes to actually hand, handling client calls. One of my concerns here, and I'd like your take on this, um, Scott, is, is this dialogue right now, I think has a tendency to undermine the tax system. Because the whole dialogue is, well, the rich don't pay tax. The rich are, uh, you know, evading tax. And, and uh, I'd like you to, and also, if you would, explain the difference between avoiding and evading, because that's a big distinction that people don't make. But there's this whole conversation about this, this dialogue. And what is missing is, in my mind, is if you say that, then a lot of people are going to say, well, if the rich cheat, then it's okay for me to cheat. And so, you know, what's your take on that dialogue that's going on? I get the need for IRS funding. I get the need for increased technology. What I don't understand is this whole dialogue that I I think has a detrimental effect on compliance, frankly. 
Yeah, there is a, there is a real tension between creating a, a landscape where it looks to people like everybody's cheating and, and therefore, well, if everybody's cheating and the IRS doesn't have any money, then I can get away with it. And so, it, you know, I, I think that the messaging about the tax gap needs to always be accompanied by the, the drumbeat of enforcement that, that, you know, it's not just that it's happening, but here's what, here's what the government is doing about it. Here's what the IRS is doing about it. Here's what you know is happening. We live in a in a voluntary compliance system. Everybody knows that. Now, a lot of it is sort of semi-voluntary because of third-party information reporting. And you and I, I think, both know that most of the tax gap is probably where that doesn't happen. But the message the IRS, I think, wants to send is that we're going to bring cases, we're going to go after people, civil audits, criminal investigations, and therefore we want to deter cheating and encourage appropriate conduct, not just among taxpayers, but among professionals as well. So let me ask you this question. The, the dialogue seems to be, well, this only is the top 1% that's cheating on their taxes. You're an experienced criminal tax lawyer. Now, I, I, get, I get that if you're not in that top 1%, they might be able not, not be able to afford you, okay? But in your experiences, is it really is that where uh, the cheatings happen, or do you see it across the board? Well, I, I do see it sort of across the board. I mean, I, I don't just represent the the top one percent, and um, I think that 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 you know the commissioner once I think famously said we intend to be in every zip code, and I think the message he was sending there is that we are going to enforce the tax law at all levels of the demographic spectrum, and I think it's important not to be disproportional about it. I mean, you don't want to come down too hard on low and moderate income people. You don't want to make this class warfare and say it's all about the top 1%. I think you want to be measured in figuring out where the tax gap really is and then devote the proportional resources aimed at each of those slices of the demographic. Hey, if you like financial education the way I do, you're going to love Buck Joffrey's podcast. Buck's a friend of mine, he's a client of mine, he's a former board certified surgeon, and he's turned into a real estate professional. So he has this podcast that is geared towards high paid professionals. That's who he's geared towards. So if you're a high paid professional, you're going, look, I'd like to do something different with my money than what I'm doing. I'd like to get financially educated. I'd like to take control of my money and my life and my taxes. I would love to recommend Buck Joffrey's podcast, which is called Wealth Formula Podcast with Buck Joffrey. I hope you join Buck on this adventure of a lifetime. So I, I've heard over the years, it's it been, and I've been practicing about the same amount of time you have. You and, look younger. <laughs> well, I, I, this is my 40th tax season this year. So excellent, excellent. I'm, I'm right up there with you, pal. Congratulations. Um, but what my experience is, I, you know, I, I, I hear a lot about earned income credit fraud. Um, that's an easy one. Uh, I think we're going to see child tax credit fraud because of these big child tax credits. I, it's a really easy one. I think just so easy. Uh, it's just begging for fraud, in my opinion. And then I see a lot of people with sole proprietors, Schedule Cs, you know, people that handle their own stuff. That's where I've tended to see cheating. In fact, I fired clients over it. You know, they came to me and I, I said, look, you have to take inventory every year. You have to do this. You have to do this. They said, well, 
you know, our prior accountant didn't require that. I'm going, yeah, well, that's illegal. So you're not going to do that and have me sign my name on the, on that tax return. So where do, where do you see most of it? I mean, if, if there's one place or another where you see a lot, what do you see? What I see is in the latter category that you just described is the sole proprietorship, small business, closely held companies uh, that don't have the sort of internal controls that you would see in a larger company. Uh, oftentimes you see it with entrepreneurs who have done well quickly and their sort of back office staff, their administrative support system hasn't developed and doesn't support them. And they, they fall into the hands perhaps of the wrong professional. So I, I, that's where I see it. And I think that even though a lot of the low hanging fruit internationally, I think has come in, I think some of it is still out there internationally. I think there are a lot of wealthy and sort of moderately wealthy people who have footprints in the United States and abroad, and they don't toe the line in terms of US reporting obligations. So I would, I would think those two areas, international and sort of small, closely held, but successful entrepreneurial businesses, that's, those are two places I would continue to focus. That, I think that's going to happen. I mean, that, that makes sense to me. I mean, the reality is, is the, the, the truly wealthy taxpayers, I mean, these guys have financial statement audits. They don't just have tax audits. They have financial auditors coming in. So they're getting audited. And, you know, we talk about the really big guys. Well, they get audited by the IRS, at least they used to. I hope they still do every single year. When I was at in a Fortune 1000 company uh, in, you know, we had an in-house tax department, uh, we had a file called hold for audit. So we knew that every single year was going to be audited and we were just going to disclose, okay, here's some things, you know, we're not going to file them in return. We're just, here's a mistake we made, you know, just tack it on, no big deal. And, um, and so those big guys, they do tend to get audited a lot, the big corporations, especially. And, um, and you know, I agree that you, you've, got to, you've got to audit, you know, big transactions because you got to get big money. But would you talk about just for a minute, this idea that there's a lot of this talk about avoidance being bad, and yet avoidance is specifically legal under, under judicial doctrine and under the law. So can you, would you, for our, our listeners, just explain the difference between evasion, which is where you come in, and avoidance, which is where I come in? Okay, you're absolutely right. I mean, avoidance is, I, you know, we both know the famous quote from, I think, Judge Learned Hand about a person shouldn't have to pay more than a nickel's worth of tax than they owe. There's no question that that is the law. Evasion tends to come in where you see uh, concealment, where you see lying, where you see misrepresentations, where um, the money doesn't quite flow in the direction that the bona fide paperwork would show that it flows. I always joke with my tax partners that when they put something on the board and it circles and triangles in a transaction, you know, that's it's very complicated. When we put something on the board, there's usually a circle. There's usually somebody at the top and a box here and a box here and a box here, and it comes back to the person at the top. Um, but it's made to look different. So the, the notion of evasion is where, you know, something untoward is going on. People are, you're backdating documents, you're misstating invoices, you're not being truthful with your return preparer. You know, it, I mean, that's, those are the badges of fraud that, that IRS auditors would look at in considering whether to open a criminal case for tax evasion. And I don't think anybody would question those people, you know, we do need to we, we do need to have auditors who can dig into that and, and find those. Uh, one of the concerning 
trends that I see in the IRS right now is there seems to be, and even in the administration, there seems to be attack on legal tax provisions um, that are super beneficial, but they are legal. And, and in fact, the courts for, take, for example, the syndicated conservation easement that the IRS has been attacking for years and the courts keep upholding the conservation easement. Okay, we keep seeing time after time where the court's um, siding with the taxpayer. So it, it is important to distinguish and hopefully the IRS will focus primarily on those evasion, those bad actors and, and going after that, knowing that people are gonna make mistakes and people are going to, you know, and they're, they're gonna take positions that maybe aren't, you know, that the IRS doesn't agree with. I'm okay with that, right? They, they wanna come after a position I've taken and I feel comfortable with that position, but they don't like it. I'm happy to argue that question. I just hope that, again, they have better auditors so that you can actually have a conversation with them. Because right now what's been happening is they tend to kick it up. The, the, the auditors just say, well, this is, this is it. And they just kick it up. And then the supervisor, well, this is it. They kick it up to appeals. And appeals is just a rubber stamp on the supervisor and the, and the audit. One of my questions for you is, do you think there's any hope of getting a better appeals system because uh, in, in the last five or six years, it seems to me like appeals has just been a rubber stamp and they've actually not done anything to help the situation. Yeah, look, I think that if the IRS gets funded better, I think you're going to see sort of across the board improvements. It's going to take time. It's going to take a lot of time. They've, they've got years to catch up on, on underfunding. But I, I think you're going to see hiring of cap more capable you know, personnel, you know, good auditors. I think you're going to see the intensive training of the current staff and of new people. I think you're going to see uh, at appeals a greater a greater attention. I mean, they, you know, they're now you know sort of independent. So I think that that's going to be part of their mission here. So I, I mean, I would anticipate. Look, I think a lot of what is going on, like the attacks on 1031 transactions and, and legislation and things like that, that's politics. That's politics and that's tax policy. And that's gonna that's above my pay grade. That's just going to happen. You know. I think where the service needs to act with regard to greater funding is in IT, data analytics, hiring, training across the board at all levels of the service. And I think it's going to take years, but there will be a turnaround in the big ship. Yeah, it's interesting on the technology side. So uh, a few years ago, I was at an AICPA tax conference and uh, somebody was talking about what New York state is doing and the way they're using AI to actually tax, uh, catch tax cheats. And they were uh, one of the, the person speaking was talking about how they look at the number of uh, lottery tickets sold in a convenience store. And they say, our data shows that based on this number of lottery tickets sold, you should have this income. And if your income is a lot lower than that, there's probably cash under the table there and cash not being reported. It seems to me like that kind of matching, that kind of technology would do a lot um, for compliance. What, what do you think should be done from a technology area? I, I agree with that. I mean, your, 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 your story reminds me of the, the pizza box story, which is where the agent goes to the, the pizza maker who is taking cash under the table and is able to establish it by the number of pizza boxes that they bought. I mean, that's in the old days. Now you have uh, more AI. Uh, I, like, I think, for example, the idea that financial institutions might be required to expand their third-party information reporting to show inflows and outflows 
that would be a treasure trove of, of data. And I think it would lead, again, it would take time, but it would lead to sort of soft communication by the IRS first, a letter that comes to a client that says, you know, dear madam, we, you know, we've seen your tax returns, you report X, your bank last year showed that, you know, X times three moved in and out of your account. Can you just explain this? Was this an inheritance? Was it a gift? And for a lot of taxpayers, there will be a legitimate explanation. Sure. For those who have problems, that will then begin to ratchet up into an audit, an intensive examination, and potentially a criminal investigation. I think that's the kind of artificial intelligence and data analytics that the service could truly benefit from. Yeah. Now, of course, uh, ideally, they'd go to a blockchain system where basically it was, the audits were done automatically, right? I mean, every, every transaction audits another, every other transaction. That's the whole idea of blockchain. So do you see them being able to do more matching? One of the things that I've noticed, uh, obviously, is, you know, I would love to see technology. <laughs> I don't want to have to manually input my K-1 from my partnership or my K-1 for my investment, right? It'd sure be nice if that were automatic. And I would be happy with the IRS getting that information, frankly. Uh, do you think that is on the horizon? Because um, right now, pretty much it's W-2s, you know, the, the W-2s, 1098s, uh, mortgages, you know, things like that that's matching. But a lot of this other stuff doesn't get matched. Um, do you see that coming with this new impetus on technology. Yeah, I hope so. And I think it would be a natural thing to think about uh, for, for the service. Uh, it goes to the point we made earlier that the cheating occurs where there's no, you know, there's no check, there's no third party check. So the more it's automated, the more that comes in, the less of a burden there's going to be on a taxpayer. And look, people make mistakes. Everybody's forgotten a 1099, you know, or misplaced a K-1. That happens all the time. Those are innocent mistakes. And there's a way to fix that and, and, and clean it up, but it would be a lot more efficient if the, you know, this notion of everybody having to enter things that the IRS already has could be dealt with. As you know, financial education is critical when it comes to creating wealth, passive income, and saving on taxes. Gain expert knowledge as Marco Santorelli shares valuable insights and proven strategies for making money with real estate on the Passive Real Estate Investing Podcast. Over the last five years, his guests have included Robert Kiyosaki, Mark Victor Hansen, Garrett Sutton, Brendan Burchard, Jim Rogers, and yours truly, Tom Wheelwright, just to name a few. If you're a busy person looking for actionable advice on the road to financial freedom, then this is the podcast for you. Available on every podcast platform or simply visit PassiveRealEstateInvesting.com. That's PassiveRealEstateInvesting.com. Let's talk about what our listeners can do about this. Okay. So I, I always say, you know what? I think Congress is your friend. The IRS is your enemy. Now I'm not sure Congress is your friend this year, um, but there are a lot of tax benefits. Probably what I'm best known for is the idea that the tax law is a series of incentives, which in my mind, there's no question they are. 1031, for example, is an incentive. It's not a loophole. It's an incentive and it's there on purpose. So I've always said, you know, the tax law itself it can be very beneficial. The IRS is not your friend. So, and I still believe that, okay? I don't think the IRS is your friend. The IRS is not here to help, right? Their we're, job we're is to cover We're here, yeah, here to help. Right. <laughs> They're here to help themselves. They've got a job to do. Uh, so what, what would you tell people about, okay, let's assume they, 
let's just say they get this $80 billion and they get additional enforcement, they get additional technology, et cetera. What do taxpayers do to protect themselves? I think the most important thing, Tom, that a taxpayer can do is to be open, candid, and truthful and complete with their tax preparer, with their tax advisor. Where, where people get into trouble is where they shave the truth when they talk to you, or they don't, they don't describe the transaction accurately. They omit material facts. They make false representations. And the, the, the refuge for a taxpayer from penalties, from criminal prosecution is, is sunlight and transparency with their tax preparer. I think that is the most important thing that, that a client can do to avoid getting themselves in the crosshairs. No, I, I certainly agree. I, you know, if, 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 I mean, no, no licensed tax preparer. Now, um, there's this question, right, of what, who the IRS is going to, uh, you know, who they're going to regulate and how they're going to regulate. I right. know the attorneys and the CPAs want to say, well, let us regulate ourselves, right? And I think we're doing a pretty good job. I, I, I don't see a lot of that fraud type stuff going on with CPAs and attorneys. I, I see it more with the non-unlicensed tax preparers. Right. Frankly, it's too easy to be a tax preparer. I, I, I agree with that. Um, but if, if you are, you know, what I always tell people is if, if you really are, keep good records and you maintain your documentation and you do everything right, you don't have to cheat to reduce your taxes. There are so many incentives in the tax law that all you have to know is, find out is, what does the government want me to do? And am I willing to do that? So right. if the government wants me to start a business to get my home office deductible, okay, am I willing to start a business to get my home office deductible? If I'm not, I'm not gonna be able to deduct it because I'm an employee. Okay, so, I mean, this is a simple, it's a really easy trade-off, um, but there's so many things. If uh, To me, a lot of it is education and I think there's a lot of misinformation going on. I know that, you know, some of that's politics, but I think some of it is intentional. And uh, with that misinformation going on, people don't know what to do. My experience is the people who cheat are the people who don't know that there are other ways that they can reduce their taxes legally, and they don't have to cheat. Um, so, you know, I, I, I love that comment about, you know, be open, honest with your uh, tax advisor, and maybe you need to, upgrade your tax preparer. You know, maybe you need to not go to the corner tax preparer. Exactly. And you really want to be careful, go to somebody who can represent you uh, competently at, uh, at, at the IRS, sh should they come knocking. Right, you want to look for, for, for professional tax preparers, people who know what they're doing, people who are not incentivized, for example, by a fee structure to find you more money. Everybody, you, you know, most people have sort of an inner core gut feeling of right and wrong. And if you're sitting across the table from a tax preparer who says, well, you know, if you tell me this, I can deduct that, you know, whether or not it's true, you know, I mean, you should know better. People should know better. And I think I, I agree with you. I think most professional tax preparers, particularly CPAs, educated accountants, enrolled agents, people who've gone through training are competent, capable uh, professionals. And where you see the trouble is in the kinds of cases you read about in the Department of Justice, you know, press releases of the tax preparer who, you know, has a, you know, a low to moderate income clientele who's vulnerable and they take advantage of them and, and make more money by getting them bigger refunds and feather their own nest by doing that. Yeah, thank you. So one thing I tell people is, you know, don't, 
don't not take a legitimate tax deduction because you're afraid of the IRS. I mean, how many times have we heard somebody say, well, my accountant said that'll raise a red flag. Okay. And uh, I, I have to explain to them, for example, it's home office, right? A lot of people say, well, the home office raises the red flag. I'm going, well, what really raises the red flag is that schedule C that you're reporting that home office on. <laughs> and a schedule C should, um, because again, no checks and balances, no balance sheet even on a schedule C. I, I would love it if they would just add a balance sheet to schedule C and schedule E, um, which is the rental properties as, as well as the small businesses. I think by that by itself would have a major impact on uh, tax compliance. Frankly, I think that's actually a pretty easy fix. And I'd, I'd like to see some of those things. I think, you know, all of us as tax professionals, we'd like to see better compliance, but what we don't wanna see is people cowering and, and not taking legitimate deductions or legitimate opportunities just because the IRS says, well, we're gonna come get you. Right, and I mean, look, somebody who has uh, a, a concern about that sort of thing, in addition to being transparent with you and, and, and a professional preparer, there's also the option of adding uh, disclosure information to a tax return. You know, I mean, if somebody is, okay, well, is this aggressive? Well, it might be. Well, then say on the tax return, describe what you're doing on the return. Look, the IRS can disagree with it. They can disallow the deduction. But if you're transparent about it, and you tell the IRS what you're doing and why, you're probably going to avoid penalties. No, I, I, I agree with that. So any, any last thoughts, any last suggestions um, for people listening here? You know, first of all, politically, uh, watch, the, watch the space, because I do think that, that for the first time in many, many years, there has been a, a change in the political climate in Washington where uh, funding the IRS is making sense to a broad consensus of, of Democrats and Republicans. I think the cur current management, I'm a little biased, you know, I, I, I know some of these people well. I think they've got a good sense of what they would do with the money in terms of spreading it around. And I think for taxpayers, they just need to be open and transparent with their return preparer. And anytime somebody suggests mischaracterizing facts, omitting information, engaging in obfuscation, the red light should go off and that should be avoided. Uh, thank you for that. Uh, Scott Michael, where can we uh, find more information about you? Uh, Kaplan and Drysdale, uh, founded by John F. Kennedy's Commissioner of Internal Revenue, Mortimer Kaplan, 57 years ago. Uh, and I can be found on the web. Happy to, uh, happy to talk to anybody. That's awesome. Thank you um, so much. You know, and, and I would say also, you know, the that kind of promote Scott a little bit. If you're worried about something, if you have something that you go, I'm worried that I did something wrong, or I'm worried that the IRS can, can get me, uh, I find that the IRS is much more reasonable when, you when you're assertive with the IRS. And so maybe that's when you talk to Scott and say, Scott, I need your help. How do I get to the IRS, let them know what went on so I don't have these big penalties and I just be forthright with them. I totally agree with your uh, proposition that we need to be really transparent and just do what's right. You know, I mean, the law, it, it's complicated, yes. Um, are there loopholes? Absolutely, there are loopholes. Um, you know, I mean, there, there are. But most of the law 
is intentional incentives. They're intentional things to help you out, whether it's your home mortgage interest deduction, um, your charitable contribution deduction, your child tax credit, um, your education credit, or, you know, or, or your deduction for investing in oil and gas. Doesn't matter who you are. These are in the law for not just, not just for your benefit, but also to benefit the government to help you, encourage you to do what the government wants done. And, and last of all, let me just uh, say, and, and Scott, you can let me know if you think, if you agree with this, don't be afraid of the IRS. Well, I don't think they're your friend. If you've got competent advisors on your side, uh, really there's nothing to be afraid of. And you just have to make sure that everything you do is legal, ethical, and moral. That's absolutely the right. That, that's the way to avoid getting into trouble with them. And when we do that, of course, we understand the law, we get educated about it, we're always going to make way more money, and in the end, we're going to pay way less taxes. You've been listening to The Wealth Ability Show with Tom Wheelwright. Way more money, way less taxes. To learn more, go to WealthAbility.com. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.